You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted that today we're able to visit with Dylan George. Dylan's a PhD. He's the Director of Operations for the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, CFA, a new entity we'll be hearing a lot about that's based at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's CDC. Welcome, Dylan, and thank you for making time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be with you today. So just a little bit more about Dylan and a few quick comments about this CFA, and then we'll jump right in. Dylan served in the Obama administration at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy as an advisor to Dr. John Holdren, who was chief scientific advisor to the president. In that period, he worked extensively on the Ebola outbreak. I think that's when we first got to know one another. He worked previously to that at BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority at HHS, in developing new technologies and developing analytic approaches to assess risk from emerging infectious diseases. And prior to that was at DOD and at the National Science Foundation, has his PhD from Colorado State University. This entity, the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, that had a really wonderful, joyous rollout April 19th. The White House had a couple of hours dedicated to this. Jake Sullivan opened things up, Ashish Jha, Rochelle Walensky from CDC really exploring what this CFA is all about. And we'll hear from Dylan, who's really in the cockpit of this new entity, $200 million to get it started, an all-star cast with Caitlin Rivers, Mark Lipsich, and Rebecca Kahn. Really, as, as Rochelle described it, a small but mighty team that's moving this forward. And I think there's a lot of challenges, and we'll talk about that, but from the tone of that event, There's a lot of expectations and excitement around this idea and a lot of encouragement at the progress you've made since you and that team came together in August and really got moving on it. And we'll get into some of the complexities of all of it, but I must say I came away from that session quite optimistic and encouraged just to see the energy and the excitement and the pleasure to see that you guys are really making progress and and getting this moving forward. So congratulations on that. So why don't we just start with the basics? Tell us in quick order, what is this CFA? Why do we need it? Like what's its mission? And where does it stand in getting stood up? What's its status? And when you think ahead in the next couple of years and getting it moving forward, what's it going to take? Those are a number of big questions, but let's get those out on the table. And then we can talk about some of the other complexities. Thank you very much for the, the comments on the, the White House launch event. It's very gratifying to see how positively people have responded to the capabilities that we're anticipating building and that we look forward to going in building going forward. Now, yeah, the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics is an idea of how do we use data and analytics more effectively to build a more robust evidence base to guide decisions in a health crisis. And as you'd mentioned in August, 2021, Rochelle Walensky reached out to me, to Mark, to Caitlin, 
to join the CDC and stand up this new Center for Forecasting Outbreak Analytics. We affectionately refer to it as CFA, as, you know, when speaking in, in good federalese, as any federal employee would. You know, and our team was given that task of how do we actually improve our ability to model, forecast, and build a better evidence base for emerging health threats and how to guide things going forward. Since then, we've been definitely trying to build that foundation of what this capability would look like and how we're going forward. There's fundamentally three main pillars of effort that we're focusing on. We refer to them as predict, inform, and innovate. So predict, we are building a world-class outbreak analytics team, data scientists coming together that have expertise in infectious disease modeling, epidemiology, and technology. Again, the, the team will develop faster, richer evidence base to guide decision-making in the emergencies. Obviously, we will need to have the advanced analytics technology and data systems to actually enable us to do this work. And importantly, we want to collaborate with our federal departments and agencies at the federal level, but really importantly, at the state and local level and trying to help leaders at that level improve decision-making and uh, the speed with which they're doing that. As Rochelle mentioned, it's like we are a small but mighty team, and we are trying to build out this capability for PREDICT to think about what we can do in an emerging outbreak scenario. And so given what was happening with Omicron, uh, the variant coming out in November and December of 2021, we quickly realized that we needed to pivot from building CFA to actually doing what we said it would do. And so we pivoted working with our colleagues, with the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, their team that I had actually run when I was working at BARDA. We wanted to help understand what was happening with the emerging Omicron variant, namely how much it was spreading, how it was spreading, and, and what was the level of clinical severity associated with that variant. And so we actually developed analyses to anticipate the timing and the impact of the variant on cases and hospitalizations in the United States. We also worked with some academic partners and some private sector partners, at, namely Kaiser Permanente Southern California and UC Berkeley, to actually develop the first U.S.-based estimates of Omicron severity. And essentially that helped us understand how much the healthcare system was going to be stressed by what was coming in January. And then as we all saw what happened in January, it did stress us in a lot of different ways. So, so that's PREDICT, building a data science team to actually help us look over the bend, look around the corner, try to get a, a, at least a little bit of advanced warning on what's going on. That's PREDICT. INFORM, CFA, we will build a team of expert communicators to help share the insights from the PREDICT team with all of our partners, including the public. The focus of this team will be to translate the forecasts and analyses to support public health decision-making. And we want to build capacity at the state and local level on interpreting model and analytical results. In short, we want to help people understand the insights from the PREDICT team. And again, as an example of some successes that we've had here in the Omicron variant, um, within days of recognizing that it was actually going to surge in the United States, we alerted federal leaders, state and local public health partners to what was coming in January. And we were doing all of this in early December. And this inform activity gave leaders several weeks of advance notice on the timing of the surge and did allow for at least some key planning activities. And so we were very proud of some of the work that we did right there in our small but mighty team 
And we're excited what we're going to be able to do at full force. And so that's predict, inform. And the last one is innovate. We recognize that in the information supply chain of collecting data, aggregating data, sharing data, analyzing data, communicating and visualizing data, and then presenting decisions, support capabilities, we need to improve our capabilities across that whole information supply chain. CFA will advance research and development to enable and improve those forecasts and outbreak analyses going forward. We've already hit the ground running. Our colleagues at CDC, before we joined, had put in motion some great efforts with academic institutions. We pushed out $21 million in funding to a couple key performers, another $5 million to federal partners to advance modeling and forecasting methodologies. And incidentally, a couple of these efforts have explicit emphasis on workforce development and health equity, which is a critical component as well. And additional investments are going to be pushed out in the coming months. Uh, and so we're really excited about that. But predict inform and innovate are the critical kinds of focuses in CFA going forward. And clearly, as I mentioned just briefly as well, there's, there is a technology component that we need to actually enable access to legacy data systems, recommend new sorts of data systems, and then enable us to do analyses at speed and scale to provide help to the state and locals from there. So Again, predict, inform, and innovate are the kind of critical functions that we see as necessary within CFA. And we are have some plans on how we're going to move forward in building that. One of the reasons why we had the launch event is we wanted people to know what we were building. And then also we wanted to, to recruit people to come help us move from our small but mighty team to a big and mighty team and go from there. I was impressed, you know, that you're aspiring to have 100 scientists as your core staff, and you are saying a third of the resources will be dedicated to communications. And we know communications, and this is Andrew's sweet spot, and we're going to hear from him momentarily. We know communications are really fraught, right, between epidemiologists and public health people, between data collectors and policymakers, between experts and public Trust is right in the center of all of that. We heard a lot of reference to trust in that rollout event. Across every panel hit the trust theme and the communication. So it's very encouraging to see that you're putting so much emphasis on that. I want to flip it over to Andrew to offer some thoughts. Thanks, Steve. And Dylan, thanks again for being here today. It's great to be with you. You know, I just wanted to ask, CDC, of course, has taken some hits including the federal judge ruling in Florida, local and state public health authorities are under siege. You know, there seems to be a loss of authority and some are demoralized. How do you and your team rise above this difficult and highly politicized, polarized environment where, you know, the COVID culture wars rage on? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question, Andrew. Thanks for posing it. I, I do think that we're at a point in time where there's significant challenges, both culturally and politically, in terms of the environment in which we're trying to come up with a standard set of facts that we all agree upon and how we move forward. I think fundamentally, this is going to be a challenge for our democracy going forward writ large. Public health is going to be kind of a, an instantiation of that general problem, but it's critical trying to, given the federalism in the United States and how public health is implemented, we definitely have to develop that trust 
with those that are receiving the information so that they will take the actions to keep themselves, their families and communities safe going forward. And like I said, and discussing what CFA is doing, we feel very strongly that we need to revolutionize and transform capabilities on how to inform and how to communicate those results to really help people understand what's going forward. Let's face it, though, too, risk communications is hard. It's really a challenging sort of activity. When I was in the White House in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, Louis Uccellini, who is the head of the Weather Service, the National Weather Service at one point came and, and chatted with me. And the details on this story will be not correct, but the sentiment will be correct. He was essentially telling me that, you know, it's like the National Weather Service came up with brilliant models that were just exquisite in their detail and precision to show how severe weather events would impact different communities. Their communications and warnings on those were less than stellar in the early stages, self-admittedly from the National Weather Service, to the point where they could tell where they would have a touchdown on a tornado in a particular community. And so they would send out messages to, to the community to say, it's like, hey, the tornado is going to touch down in the next 30 minutes. You prepare and, and keep yourself safe. What people were hearing in some of the messaging that they were putting out is like, oh, I've got time to go get my kid across town, bring him home so that we can all be safe together. What happened was people were out and about when the touchdown happened because it was it was gridlock. Again, the details are probably incorrect, but the sentiment is exactly right, is that they had to learn how to do risk communications on extreme weather. There will be a progression and we need to figure out how to do this before. And so learning from what Louis was trying to teach me from the National Weather Service and extreme weather, that's one of the reasons why we emphasized this in such a significant way going forward. And incidentally, this informed function is going to be really challenging. Uh, looking at the uncertainty in an emerging scenario of the data, trying to explain these complex models in an easily accessible way, and then also the policy options that, that could be put into play on, on for public health response. Getting people that can do that effectively and communicate across all of that and integrate across that information, it's going to be challenging. But we're up for the challenge. We want to meet this moment. We want to meet, build a team that can do it exceptionally well. And that's why I was so pleased when Caitlin agreed to come and help us think that through in, more, in, a, in a deep way because she's one of the best in the business at doing this sort of thing. So we need more help. You must be encouraged by Ashish Jha's presence at the White House also, being that he is such an effective communicator across the aisle. I mean, he's not somebody who's perceived as a partisan. And so that has to help to some degree. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think Ashish has done a brilliant job of not only communicating in a way that even my mother can understand what he's saying, right? but also he's he's done an exceptional job, as, you, as you've pointed out, reaching out, regardless of political identity, to talk to with anyone. He has been masterful at that. I completely agree. I would like to follow up with a couple quick questions on building alliances, building allegiance, building trust. You got a big task before you in terms of getting out on the road and touching people and communicating with them. You had some people, a very interesting array on one of your panels during the White House rollout with from Georgia, from Tennessee, from California. So my question there is, are you making progress? Where are you seeing the greatest kind of upsurge of interest? at state and local levels where people are putting their hands up and saying, you're absolutely right and we're, we're there to work with you versus, you know, somebody who's maybe suspicious or skeptical of the power of CDC and others and really not that interested and a little distrusting. That's, that's one question. Another is, do you need new authorities to collect public health data? Because 
Public health data here in the United States, it's very disaggregated. It's very localized. There's no uniform standard. We have no national system. And you're really aspiring to create such a thing, in effect. And you're going to be treading on people's turf. How do you deal with that? It's partly building trust. It's partly, do you have the authority to do that? They're critically important questions, and I completely agree that it's going to be challenging to do this. I frequently said, I think the 10x value proposition of CFA is if we can provide insights and information to Rochelle and the White House to guide a response at the federal level, that's the 10x value proposition. The 100x value proposition is if we can do that with governors and key mayors, that's where we're really going to be cooking with gas. And I think that's where we're going to really see significant advantages. When In the early stages of the pandemic, I had the honor of, of sitting on an external advisory committee for Mayor Durkin, Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle. Now, she was a particularly enlightened leader, and I am just the biggest fan of hers. But she brought together a group of people to actually advise her as to what to do and one of the, the one of the tasks I was brought on board to do was to help her interpret some of the modeling that she was getting from the Institute for Disease Modeling on a weekly basis and help her understand how to translate that into particular actions she could take to see the authorities that she had and be able to implement some of those suggestions very quickly was very empowering. And so that's why one of the reasons why we want to engage with state and locals much more effectively, because in our federalism system, the authorities really lie at those local levels. Now, in a time of crisis, I do think that the CDC should have some sort of ability to collect data in a time of crisis so that we have an understanding of what's happening across the nation. And so I do think that there's new authorities that that need to be thought through. But in terms of how we are engaging with the state and locals, that's going to be a challenge for us to scale, quite honestly. And we need to think that through very carefully, and we need to take advantage of technology to be able to scale more effectively. But what we're hoping to do is, we're, like I said, we're hoping to build capacity at local levels. We're hoping to do projects jointly with, with key state and local groups so that we can build that trust over time of developing things jointly and think that through. And so we are prepared to spend money and place individuals in localities in different places so that we can actually move that forward. One other question is, we've got a lot of modelers out there, right, that are doing modeling. And some of them are good. Some of them are sometimes very successful. Some of them are less high quality. They're very competitive. When you get outside of two or three weeks, it gets pretty funky on the projections. So you've got that. Then you have big investments having been made over the last decade in places like the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at UW. And you have some new things like the Rockefeller Institute here in Washington. And you've got Chan Zuckerberg Hub out in the West Coast. How do you relate to both the, the modelers that are out there already that have been pushing stuff out, they're very competitive, and then these new hubs that are based on a new form of philanthropy, really? I mean, the Gates Foundation, Chan Zuckerberg, Rockefeller is, you know, in an old philanthropy, but doing new things under Raj. How does this all fit together? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. So, I mean, back when I was working at BARDA, I ran an, a data analytics team that was looking at these sorts of things. And so Gary Disborough was actually the incident manager at the time for Ebola. I, what I did is I brought together all of the federal and academic modelers to say, it's like, what do we know about Ebola? How do we actually bring the models together to actually inform the senior leaders going forward? And so it was bringing together a coalition of the willing of modelers. And it was all largely academic based. We had to meet the moment doing it that way. 
But we don't prepare for war. We don't prepare for natural disasters in that capacity where we ask academics to take time off of, from their day job to help us think through what is the, the crisis du jour. So we need to build an internal team that can move at a moment's notice, be the first ones in and the last ones out on a response so that we can actually have that capability going forward. Now, I'm not I, I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that there's not going to be great advances and really rich contributions from other sources outside of our data team. And we want to find ways of actually developing a network and bringing that information in as, as more expeditiously as we can during a time of crisis. And so we want to work with the Institutes of Disease Modeling in the world. We want to work with the Imperial Colleges of the world. We want to work with academic performers like IHME. And we want to work with private sector folks that are developing these things. And we want to figure out how to do it systematically. And then so we can separate the wheat from the chaff and going forward and, and receive that information and present it up going forward. We do want to try to be a coordinating function in this. Now, you also did mention that there's a there's a, a burgeoning sort of ecosystem of people that are work, operating in this space. I mean, the other other group that you didn't mention was the WHO Pandemic Intelligence Hub that's uh, standing up in Berlin that Chikwe and Oliver Morgan and Mike Ryan are putting together, which I think is going to be a critical component in bringing this together. But I do think this ecosystem, we do need to figure out in fairly short order what are the intentional overlaps of function? What are the complementary sorts of functions? And how do we work together as an ecosystem versus just single points of light? Um, and that's, I think, an effort that we're all very interested in and we're all trying to think through going forward. So, so stay tuned for that. Dylan, what type of new coalition needs to be constructed in favor of a national security rationale for pandemic data and preparedness? And what private entities need to be enlisted? The first thing I'll take with that question is it's like pandemics should be a national security priority. And that's one of the reasons why I was so grateful that having worked in the Biden-Harrison transition team in putting together the national security memo number one, that's where the justification, essentially the, the mandate for the center resides in a national security memo to actually move this capability forward. And that we were very uh, grateful to have uh, Mr. Jake Sullivan come as the national security advisor and essentially reiterate that message to the to the the people for the launch is that this is a critically important capability for national security reasons, not just health security reasons, not just development reasons, but national security. And so I think that message came through loud and clear, or at least it should. And so in terms of the coalitions that are necessary to move forward. You know, it was very interesting after the anthrax attacks in the United States, we recognized that we needed to develop medical countermeasures in a completely different way, largely because there is this very famed sort of valley of death. Lots of great medical countermeasure research was going on in the academic community. There was a, a meager market to actually support pandemic therapeutics or vaccines, and we needed something to bridge that valley of death. Therefore, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority was born to help bridge that gap. Now, there's other groups that have since come into the, that ecosystem as well, namely CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Pandemic Innovation, being one of them. But we definitely reap the benefits from developing that organization that, that facilitated a public-private partnership in medical countermeasure development going forward. And now, I, like I said, I, I worked at BARDA, and I know that there's warts associated with the organization, but one thing they do well is they do bring the private sector together much better than a lot of other parts of the federal government. Now, fast forward to now, 
COVID has laid bare a lot of the fault lines associated with the public health infrastructure, particularly in the United States, in terms of data and how it's collected, shared, moved forward, and used to inform responses. We need to, and part of that is due to the fact that we don't have the latest technology that's helping us do a lot of this work. We need to rethink our relationship in a public-private partnership similar to what we did after the anthrax attacks. We need to think about how we use the private sector more effectively to move data at the speed of need, at the speed and scale of an outbreak, and not at the speed of a bureaucracy or the speed of a fax machine. And this is something that is has been a critical kind of effort, and, and Rochelle has been a leader in this space as well, pushing forward the Data Modernization Initiative and the Center for Forecasting Outbreak Analytics. She has been, a, I wouldn't have left the private sector, quite honestly, if I didn't believe that she was a transformative leader that was going to push this forward and make sure that we had lasting change going forward. But she is, and she's very dedicated to this. What I hear you saying is, if we're going to transform the way data is managed in this country, we're going to have to bring in the private sector in a very big way. I mean, I remember doing interviews back in 2020 with a, a range of public health authorities, including senior folks at CDC, hearing people tell me, look, the quality of data management and collection in this agency is somewhere on par with a junior college. And that compares with private sector entities in the biomedical services delivery side of things, as well as in all sorts of other sectors that are just miles beyond where we are. So that contradiction, that gap suggests that for you to move forward, you're really going to have to be able to make those partnerships in a big way. How, how many years to get to where you need to be? And what's the, what is the estimated cost? You were given $200 million to get out and running, and you've made progress in, in the Omicron stuff in the fall. You proved your value. You can continue to do that. You're stretching your money out, but but you're going to need you're going to need a significant and sustained multi-year budget to build this. Can you give us some idea what that would look like? In terms of the relationships that we need to build going forward, I completely agree with you. We need to think anew about how to do this. And there's there's rightful and justifiable concerns about privacy, about trust in information, and about which organizations in the private sector actually have access to data. And those can all be thought through. And we can actually develop those and think those through very effectively. I'm confident of that. And I'm very encouraged by some of the efforts that are going forward. Dan Jernigan, uh, again, at the CDC has been doing a great job pushing forward the data and modernization initiative, but it needs to move faster and it needs to be much more broad in what we're going forward. So now in terms of the resources that are needed, as you pointed out in the American Rescue Plan, we got uh, supplemental funding for essentially seed money to get the center up and running. And that was a, on the order of $200 million, and we are able to stretch that out because it was no year money. So we are able to stretch it out as, as much as we possibly can. We are focusing on You'll see in the president's FY23 budget as well that there was an additional $50 million requested from the appropriations. And because we were planning to stretch out our funding such that we will have a remaining $50 million and then we'll get the appropriated $50 million if, if the budget goes through as, as anticipated to give us a year-on-year -year sort of anticipated budget of about $100 million, which means FY24 we're going to have to have an additional request in that appropriations going forward. I do think that we will have uh, sustainable and substantial capabilities if we're able to maintain that sort of a budget, to be able to do the kinds of analytical work that, that will be helpful in generating that evidence base. 
also, I think the value proposition of what the CFA is going to be developing as well as defining what are the data requirements that we really need in a time of crisis. There's a lots of discussion about data this, data that, but what are the most critical data? What are the nice to have data? And how do we actually understand what those are? We need to define those data requirements very, very stringently. And that's one of the efforts that we're, we're pushing forward within CFA as well. Before we close, tell us what you're most worried about. So I think that the, the biggest thing that I'm most worried about is the panic neglect cycle. You know, I think that we're in the teeth of some evidence of going into neglect right now, too. It's, very, it's a little bit hard to kind of think that through, given what's happening in the Ukraine right now. But what you mentioned on the top of, you know, mistrust in government, mistrust in public health and the panic neglect cycle coming, coming together, that's one of the things I worry about the most. I am hopeful though, that, that there's going to be a significant enough you know, constituency, both on the Hill and uh, globally, that will be able to keep pushing this forward. But you know, you've been at this for a long time, too, and you've seen these panic neglect cycles wax and wane. But um, that's probably the biggest thing that I worry about when I wake up in the middle of the night uh, going forward. And Dylan, on the, on the other side of that, you know, we always ask our, our guests, like, what gives you the most hope and optimism? certainly seems like where you've turned a corner a bit on COVID, but what gives you hope and optimism? You know, one of the things that was that made me proud as an American was seeing the private citizens, private companies working against interest, private academics dropping what they were doing and coming together in a surge capacity to help out in the response. It was impressive to see everybody jumping in. COVID tracking project, Johns Hopkins group, they moved data and they helped us understand what was happening in the pandemic in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do in, in other capacities through the through government channels. Seeing that latent sort of capacity out there that it can be done gives me a lot of hope. And it makes me very proud that people saw a problem and they just jumped in to kind of fix it to keep other Americans safe. That is something that we need to figure out how to capture and how to actually enable and make it easier for people to contribute going in in next crises. Going yeah, how forward. to really sustain, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why we're building a team internally so that we don't have to rely on that. Like I said before, it's like when a hurricane comes barreling down on Florida, we don't ask academics to stop their you know, teaching to help us understand where landfall happens. We have a team that actually does hurricane forecasting to do that kind of work. So we need to actually build the internal team, but also we need to take advantage of that amazing entrepreneurial spirit, that amazing can-do attitude, and that amazing kind of goodwill that is out there in the pandemic. Those are some of the things that I want to focus on from the pandemic and have just been inspired by seeing how people have responded. Yeah, there's a lot of negativity and a lot of mistrust out there, but there was amazing work that was done as well. I'm hoping that we can capitalize on that. You know, government isn't known for its entrepreneurial shit. That's why the business sector has become so important over the years in terms of how things actually get done in the United States. But you seem to have a lot of optimism that, you know, this turnaround and because of what government's already done in this space, this is something that can be not only can be done, but can be sustained. And I'm excited to hear you say that. I do think that having spent time in the private sector, I've started to realize the strength and power of what can be done from organizations that are in that space. And that's why I was arguing that we do need to have this new relationship with the private sector to actually enable some of the functions and missions of the, of the CFA. It is going to be critical 
there's some things in scaling and growing that the private sector do so much better than the public sector. And we need to take advantage of those. And we need to work together to make sure that it's, it's moving forward. I, I, I think that the, the private sector as well, they have skin in the game now too. They know how much a, a pandemic can really disrupt critical capabilities and missions. And so I think that there's an opportunity right now for us to redefine that public-private partnership in moving data and insights as to how to actually respond to, to pandemics going forward and other sorts of health emergencies as well. Well, Dylan, this is exciting for me and Steve to talk to you. Thank you very much for all you're doing. And we will be wanting to check in with you again very soon to hear about the progress. We would love to. And and the last thing I would say, though, too, is, again, thank you for this opportunity. It's a weekly sort of ritual for me to listen to the, this podcast. So it's an honor to be on it with you. The other thing, though, too, is that if people are interested in, in joining our Small But Mighty team, we do want to talk with you. And so please reach out. We would love to kind of find the best and the brightest to help us build what we're building right now. And we would love to come back and chat with you more about as, as we progress and build our capabilities going forward. Thank you. Thanks so much. Congratulations. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.